give you a book for the clerk if you yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll buy you lunch or something. Oh gosh. <laughs> uh, if you haven't been with us, we've been in this uh, sermon series of uh, called "Ruin to Renovation," and we have, we have really been with this. Is, I think this is the fifth sermon. Uh, there are these uh, binders over there. Take one; they're free. Uh, they have some directions in the front, and then they have the, the, the first sermon. They have the questions from that. But just to, as, as directional for you, again, is that what we're doing is every Monday after the sermon, we go to the website, we find the sermon page, and we download the questions, and we print them out, and we put them in our binder, and then we use that as sort of a quiet time. Uh, so we're all kind of doing the same thing, and these are the same questions that we're going through in community groups. So if you can't make it to a community group, you can at least participate with everybody else in spirit, you know. Um, there's also a few of these Lexio Divina journals left. You can take one of those. They're just great quiet times. You know, they're dated, but it doesn't really matter. You can use them anytime. And I also want to show you, because uh, a lot of the principles that we're, we're talking about and, and, and a lot of the words and every, the ideas that we're talking about are, are, are born out of this book called Renovation of the Heart by Dallas Willard. And if you want to grab that book and read it, uh, it doesn't matter when you start to read it. It, it, it just, it's going to reinforce all this stuff in this, in this sermon series. It is a very, I, I love this book. It's a great book. Uh, Dallas is kind of hard to follow sometimes. You might have to read paragraphs a couple times. It's okay. Take two years to read it. Who cares? You don't need to read it like in an afternoon. It's, it's a, just a really good uh, practice. Renovation of the Heart in Daily Practice is a companion to this. It's got one like little like two-page shots you can, you can use as quiet time kind of stuff. So just thought I would say all that again. Amen. Um, anyway, uh, Dallas in that book uh, claims that societies all the world over, uh, including American society, uh, are desperately trying to produce citizens uh, who can simply cope with life without being destructive, right? Uh, that spiritually, uh, all over the world, all societies are th- spiritually third world, that they're, they're, they're undeveloped spiritually. And it certainly seems that way when you listen to the news or you watch uh, the news across the world and in America right now. Uh, but remember, you know, it's not all darkness, right? There are rays and light of light in all of that. The church, I, I, I truly believe this, the church, uh, and I don't mean like church as far as a, you know, I, I mean people, people that believe in Jesus and walk, walk it out with Jesus, being spiritually formed in Christ very well. Is a, it is a beacon of hope in an otherwise spiritually impoverished world. I truly believe that. Yet some of us, uh, have yet to experience that. We've never seen the church at her best, right? And uh, we therefore believe it's impossible. Well, I'm here to challenge you. It is possible, right? Julie Cohen, wherever she is, sitting someplace, she's out there. Where are you, Julie? Oh, there you are. Oh, oh there you are. Yeah, yeah. Julie Cohen recently said to me, the problem with um, speaking about spiritual formation is that we begin to believe that it's within our power to change our own hearts. And I think she's right. It's not within my power to change my own heart. I don't believe that, right? I don't believe it is. 
But we are called to be a part of the, this process with the Lord, right? But Jesus changes your heart. Jesus changes your heart. He's been in the process, by the way, of orchestrating change in individuals and in societies all throughout history in order to bring human hearts into alignment with his. And confirmation of that is seen in the ever-changing forms which people must adopt and use to communicate the gospel or just in you know, simple worship practices. Things change. You ever wonder why certain ways of thinking uh, work in a certain time in history, but other times they don't? They cease to work? They cease to be effective at different times? Spiritual tricks uh, cease to be useful. They grow dry on us. They're tools, that is because they are tools with no power in and of themselves to change hearts. They just can't do it. Their purpose, though, is to get us in front of Jesus, right? And if they had power to change hearts, if these tools that we use had power to change hearts, we'd rely on our ability to use them really well, and therefore we'd be right back to the worship of self. Tools such as the four spiritual laws, if you're old enough to remember that, they were very powerful in the 1970s and having people to understand and embrace the gospel of Christ. Many, many people... Uh, gave their hearts to Jesus during that time in the 1970s and 80s. And t- these tracks of the four spiritual laws, these little booklets were printed and produced by the truckload, right? We used them all over the place. But now the four spiritual laws aren't the go-to evangelistic tool uh, for us anymore, right? The gospel hasn't changed, right? The four spiritual laws are still true, They just don't speak to millennials in the same way that they spoke to baby boomers, right? And we said last week, if you remember, millennials are looking for things to be relevant, not necessarily that they're true, and baby boomers just wanted truth, right? They were tools useful only for a time. God is always moving. This is a statement you should remember. God is always moving, but he's never changing, God is always moving, but he's never changing. He's adaptive, I think, in communication. He's progressive in, a, in that sense of his communication, but he's unchanging in character nonetheless, right? So Hebrews 13, 8 and 9 say, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Don't be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings. It is good for our hearts to be strengthened by grace. So God's effective, God's effective hand of change can also be seen throughout history, uh, through these people movements throughout history, in his bringing Israel out of Egypt, right? When the time was right, it said. In, in their entry and emergence uh, from the Babylonian exile, we saw that in, in the emergence of a Christian identity in first century Judaism, I don't know if you know this, but the first hundred years of the church, people went to church and to synagogue, right? They went to their Christian meeting and they went to their Jewish gathering, right? Then he, he created a separate Christian, Christian identity outside of Jewish heritage. And that's what we are uh, involved in today. 
We see it in the, in the emergence of monasticism and all its forms and the Protestant Re- Reformation and Pietism and Wesleyan and, and American Revivalism, if you've done that history search, and the, pen, the charismatic Pentecostal movements, which basically bore the uh, birth of Jesus people back in, I think, the 1960s, which actually bore, uh, birthed, uh, I can't talk this morning, birthed uh, the Vineyard Movement. So God reached the hippies, and the hippies got organized for some strange reason. You never thought that possible, but they did. And here we are. you got a pastor with dreadlocks, because we're in the vineyard. We're not an Episcopalian church. I don't wear a robe, right? Which is nothing wrong with wearing a robe. Or anything. I'm not being critical at all by that statement. It's just that that's where we came from, right? That's what was effective. And so what history tells us is, that modes of dress and organizational preferences and even worship forms aren't the point. I, I sat with somebody this week that said, uh, I said, oh, you used to lead worship. And they're like, yeah, but I gave that up because I, I kind of got stuck. <laughs> so I, I, don't, I don't do it anymore, right? God uses different forms to reach different people. And outward things change when they cease to be effective. There's nothing wrong with that. New wine needs new wineskins, so to speak. Content doesn't change. Jesus doesn't change. But the outward forms of communicating Jesus to society sometimes do change. Right? Or they morph. There are 33,800 Christian denominations in the world today. Wow! Right? And strangely, we may be seeing the disillusion of denominationalism in the Christian church. I'm kind of all for that, right? We can no longer answer the question, are you a Christian, by saying, I'm a Baptist, or I'm I'm a Presbyterian, or I'm, I'm an Episcopalian, or I'm whatever, you know? Whatever your brand is, right? Our vineyard identity should even be held on to with open palms, right? Held on to very lightly, since the real question is, do I truly know and follow Jesus? That's the real question. Denominational affiliation isn't the goal. Jesus is the goal, and he's always been the goal, and he always will be the goal. So in speaking about spiritual formation, which this whole series is about, we speak of a distinct process, right? of allowing the Holy Spirit access to our hearts, of participating with Him by the ingesting of God's Word, of communing with Him in prayerful moments, in order that we would be transformed by, in, in our inner being with the likeness of Christ. So the outer life, our outer life, will reflect Jesus in ways that we are truly transformed by the inner life, right? Not just wearing the Christian mask. Not just wearing the mask to look good to everybody else on a Sunday morning, right? Or for a soundbite on the news or whatever it is. Becoming people who don't just say that we have integrity, but actually have integrity. There's a difference. Right? Too long we have been, and this is blanket statements, I get it, right? It's not critical of every single person, but too long we have been like the guy who cares more about looking healthy than actually being healthy. Right? Surviving on McDonald's and beer 
until, you know, enjoying that youthful metabolism until you hit 30, 35, 40 years old, and then you got a price to pay, right? You didn't realize it. Oh, crap. You know, suddenly you got a muffin top, you know? It happens. And that's the way we've lived spiritually. Spiritual formation focuses itself entirely on Jesus. Its goal is obedience. Oh, bad word, right? Obedience and conformity to Christ arising out of inner transformation by his spirit and word through intimate interaction with with him under the safety uh, umbrella of grace, the safe umbrella of grace. Whereas the rest of the world cringes at the word obedience, It's the essential fuel, it is the essential pursuit, and it is the essential outcome of Christian spiritual formation. Obedience to Jesus. It's the placing of ourselves on the spiritual operating table and allowing him to do the work. We see all of this reflected in John chapter 13, 34 and 35. He says, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, In other words, as I have modeled it for you, so you must love one another. And by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Now Jesus, we know, and I I, I hope that you would agree with me, Jesus loved completely, right? He loved completely. And those who know and love and follow Jesus love others completely, or at least we're growing to do so. Right? We may stumble along in that. We, weren't, we aren't perfect. But he was kind and he was gentle-hearted. But he was also straightforward with those people that were sincere and remorseful in their lives. You remember the crippled man at the pool, right? He, come, he comes along and Jesus says, do you want to get well? That's a good question. Do you really want to get well? Do you know what it means to actually get well? Right? And then the guy gets healed and then Jesus says, don't sin anymore. So he confronts the, the, the wrongfulness in them. But he does it in a great way. And then you remember um, the Samaritan woman at the well. He was really gentle, really kind, really loving towards her. She was remorseful. She was open, you know, all this kind of stuff. And, and he says, you know, you know, go and call your husband. And he confronts her sinful lifestyle. Not in order to be mean, but in order to lead her to himself. Peter, right? He, we know he loved Peter. He walked with Peter. He lived with Peter. He walked around and did ministry with Peter. And then when Peter said something that was off base, he said, Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Right? Boffin wanted to say that to Joe Gargano. Get behind me, Satan. <laughs> right? No, I'm just kidding. Joe is wonderful. <laughs> but see, what the point is, love isn't just mere acceptance or tolerance of bad behavior and attitude. That's not what it is. Love calls people higher up into into thoughts and attitudes and lifestyles that are worthy of Christ's name. Love with teeth, I like to say. Love with teeth. Christ's love was sometimes, or it sometimes seemed, harsh as in the case of how he spoke to the legalistic Pharisees, and he called them a brood of vipers. That's, that doesn't seem too nice. A brood of vipers. Truthful love confronts the heart which leads to destructive, ungodly behaviors. 
Jesus always modeled the statement, love without truth lies, truth without love kills. Love without truth lies, truth without love kills. Think about that for a moment. Write that on your mirror at home and think about it. Love without truth lies, truth without love kills. Truth and love walk hand in hand. They're like, you know, twin sisters that you can't tell apart. If I'm loving you, then I'm leading you into truth. And I'm not using truth to beat you up either. I'm leading you with it. True love is graciously truthful and mercifully straightforward. It accepts, but it challenges you to be like Jesus. Right? Calling you upward to that which you were originally created to be. It always addresses the heart and not the outward behavior. The, obe- the obedience and the power, remember Jesus changes hearts, right? So the obedience and the power which enables all of this is seen in John chapter 14, 15 through 21. He says, if you love me, keep my commands. And I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the spirit of truth. And the world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he lives within you are with you and and will be in you, and I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me, because I live, you also will live. And on that day, you will realize that I am in the Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. We're all entangled up together, right? Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father, And I too will love them and show myself to them. So true followers of Jesus grow to obey Christ's commands uh, in the convergence of listening to the Holy Spirit who is introduced to us here in this passage while also being fed by the revealed Word of God, which we'll talk about a little bit more later. And one command we've seen in the past weeks is the Great Commission. We've looked at that in the past two weeks. Uh, Matthew 28, 18 through 20, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. And then he goes on, right? Another command that we see right here is to love one another. The result of love, by the way, when we're doing this well within our ranks and with other people outside of this, the result of this is this this communal outward uh, identification with Jesus. That when people see us loving well, they look at us and they say, should say, oh, they must be Christians. I remember Muslim women in Indonesia would always say, I want to marry a Christian man because they love their wives. That was a great compliment. The sad thing is, though, that love isn't always the trait that people think of when they think of Christian these days, right? It's rather judgment or political groups compromising of their own values, or nationalism, or moralism, or legalism. It's wastefulness and extravagance. And if you had listened to David Foster Wallace's uh, commencement speech that I mentioned last week, you would have heard him uh, express that sentiment really strongly. See, issues for Christians, all the issues out there, issues for Christians have usurped Jesus in our conversations. 
be they family values or the pro-life movement or justice or what have you. Issues have usurped Jesus. And when that happens, the gospel's polluted and lost. The gospel is polluted and lost. But it's such an easy mistake to make. It's such an easy mistake to make. It, it, our goal isn't, we have to remember that our goal isn't to make people agree with our issues or even act in the way that we deem correct. It's Jesus in their hearts. That's our goal. Allowing him to change them from the inside out. And then behavior coincides with Jesus, not with my opinions, right? Sadly, though, we are identified by anything but love, which reveals the church's lack of deep spiritual formation over the, the, the decades, right? Or the years. But let's praise where praise is due. Right? I was at Joe and Julie's community group last week or the week before. I forget when it was. And as the, the board members, a few of the board members from Linwood Park were there. These people aren't professing Christians. And they're sitting in the room. And, and they start praising six-eighters, you guys, for our commitment and our love towards them and our, and our lightheartedness, and our smiles towards them and our uplifting attitudes towards them, and also our many prayers over them. We prayed over these people quite a bit, and, it, and it's moved them. That's good witness. That is great witness, right? The spiritual life of obedience is made possible through God's Spirit within us, right? He moves in us. Without which we, we couldn't begin to truly obey and follow the word of the Lord. We couldn't. I couldn't do it. But in a similar vein, the outward manifestation of Christ's likeness isn't the main focus either. All the desirable, when it's made the, the, the main focus, we, we also fall into legalism and insularity and provincialism. We become hurtful. We See, the, the point I'm trying to make is that we tend to want to look like Jesus' behavior level on the outside when we come to church, but instead in truly being like Jesus at the heart level. There's a big difference. The whitewashed tomb, as Jesus called the Pharisees, if you remember that, that's what he was talking about. The person claiming to have integrity, but not really having integrity, Right? The guy who looks healthy, but is internally cancerous. Paul's desire for the Galatians is our hope as well for each other. Uh, Galatians 4.19, and that being Christ formed in us. In us, right? We don't want, 6.8 doesn't want to fall into legalism, which leads to judgment and, and moralism, only seeking to restrain behavior and look good without actually becoming good. Like 2 Corinthians 3, 6 says, For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Love without truth lies. Truth without love kills. Same thing, right? <clears throat> this spiritual life has always been for me sort of a, an artful act. As you may know, I, 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 I'm a painter. I haven't painted in a while, but I, I am a, an artist. I went to art school, blah, blah, blah. I'm not as good as Chris or Maddie Griner, but, oh well. 
Um, but meaningful, skillful, moving art, right? The art that like, you stand in front of and you're like, oh my gosh, that is incredible, right? It can't be created by setting out to make a masterpiece. It can't. Fame or perfection can't be the goal. Although artists all desire to make something beautiful, right? Meaningful art is produced in a crucible of passion and skill coming together almost by divine chance. Almost like it just happens. But it is guided by timeless principles of whatever medium is used in the creative process. If Vinnie or Mary write a song as, as mu- musical artists, I didn't make fun. Yeah, you got mentioned. Mary got mentioned. Yeah, if Vinnie and Mary, or if Mary writes a song, forget about Vinnie. He sucks at that stuff. If Mary writes a song, oh, I made somebody cry. Um, it's got to be filled with feeling, right? It's got to be filled with feeling. But it's also undergirded by the principles of music theory which work together well. And if you break those principles of music theory, you have to do it intentionally to make it sound good. But overall, they, they are, they are uh, guided by music theory, right? If Matty Griner or Chris Nixon paint a painting, uh, each stroke comes out of this an, an emotional connection to the subject matter, right? But also, it is guided by the indispensable techniques of painting that has been passed down for centuries from old masters and contemporary artists alike. There's something underneath it. Masterpieces seem to almost happen as if there's a divine movement behind them. Skill concealed in passion, right? You don't see the skill. All you see is the passion, but it's there. There's a structure undergirding their creation, right? Structure infused with heart. And we know when art and philosophy are divorced from God's truth, they become degrading and destructive. Our key here is found in the words of Jesus when he says, whoever has my commands and keeps them, he is the one who loves me, or she is the one who loves me. We could say that. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them and show myself to them. Very familiar verse. But it's not just cold obedience. That's not what he's talking about. It's an act of intimacy. He's talking about being intimate with him. He's, it's an act of intimacy, walking with Jesus, ingesting who he is, taking him in, right? In that intimate, formative act, more and more of the Father's heart is imparted to us. Like a child reared by a loving father, we begin to take on our Father's character. So John 14, 21 is not a prescriptive statement. He's not saying, go out and do more good things. Go and be better people, like just, you know, look good out there. He, it is a descriptive statement. When you see somebody actually loving, then you're going to know that they're part of me. You know, people have concocted ways to ripen a banana quickly. You know, you get an unripe banana, you want it ripened quickly, right? And they stick it in a brown paper bag, or they nuke it, or they, or they, they bake it. For a short time, but with every single method that people have come up with, the banana always looks more ripe on the outside than it is on the inside. And when you break it open, you bite into it, it's still bitter. It doesn't work. Cutting corners doesn't work. The best way isn't 
the fast way, right? But it is the most effective way for inside-out ripening, and it speeds up the process a little bit. All you have to do is put a green banana alongside a ripe banana, and after a time, that green banana will have become what it had in it to become, right? It will have ripened gorgeously. You know, it, it, was, it would be yellow where it was green. It will sweeten where it was bitter. And it rises to the company it keeps. And that's true of people. We know that. The company we keep plays a large part in our ripening or our rotting or our just staying green forever. Tony Morrison kept uh, company with James Baldwin, Socrates with Plato, Diego Rivera with uh, Frida Kahlo, Lord Byron with Mary Shelley, Louisa May Alcott with Ralph Waldo Emerson, Truman Capote with Harper Lee. All these people uh, influenced each other. And of course, Statler with Waldo. If you remember these guys, if you're old enough, (laughs) they influenced each other. Maybe not in a positive way. You remember them? Statler and Waldorf. But we, we are to keep company with Jesus. Simple as that. Keep company with Jesus. Placing ourselves next to him, we ripen into his likeness, right? That's what we, we become. And he commands us to place ourselves also next to others. Matthew 28, 18 through 20, right? To encourage them towards Christ's likeness themselves. And that is discipleship. Being with Jesus, being Jesus to others. Being with Jesus being Jesus to others. I'm next to Jesus, and I'm letting that bleed out to the guy next to me. If ripening is anything, it is becoming what we have in us to become, and then it is to share it with others, right? Christians throughout history, and the Jews during Christ's time on earth, all have made this grave mistake in what it means to follow God. Last, last week we said to shoot for the heart doesn't mean behavior is unimportant. That, it, that behavior should change. It should become godly. But it should truly change. Resultant of a divine work in our hearts. Not just behavioral restraints, which leads to moralism and legalism. That's not what we're looking for. Many of us have been a part of this legalistic, hurtful Christian community, right? Which focuses itself only on outward behavior. Seth and I talked about these issues this week, right Seth? Jesus confronted the Pharisees and the scribes in his day who practiced this same attitude. In Matthew five seventeen through 20 he said, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. The scriptures, that's what he's talking about. The word of God is important, and it won't go away. And we've got to be really careful when we try to reinterpret it just for the sake of making it fit what we want. And he continues, therefore, if anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will, you will, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Urgh, that's scary. 
And this, see, this is coming in the context. That passage is coming in the context of the Sermon on the Mount, which Jesus refers to many wrong behaviors. So he identifies wrong behavior. Acting in anger and returning evil for evil and heartless divorce and verbal manipulation and lustful practices and so on and so forth. Those bad behaviors point, though, he says, to crooked hearts. And he upholds the written word of Scripture as important, and he's come to fulfill it, and we can't disregard even the smallest scriptural command in it, remembering that his reaction to the scribes and the Pharisees and other places concerning their focus on the shallow outward display of self-righteousness, right? Remember that, whitewashed tombs. You'd think that he'd misspoken here, right? That he shouldn't be talking about behavior at all. Does he actually expect us to live even more perfectly in outward behavioral practices than they did, the Pharisees? Because they did a pretty good job at it. Well, anyone familiar with Jesus who's spent enough time with him in word and in prayer and who, who, is, who has really ingested Jesus, ingested the scriptures in, in all this time, understands intuitively that to surpass the righteousness of the Pharisees is not to like, make sure that we outwardly live really, really well in every little detail of life. It is to pursue something deeper beyond just shallow outward behavior. It's to pursue Christ's righteousness and the killing off of our self-righteousness. To have integrity rather than just looking like we have integrity. It's the cleaning of the outside of the cup and the dish that Jesus confronted them with in Matthew 23. It's becoming the good tree that is unable to produce bad fruit. Have you ever seen a good, healthy tree produce unhealthy, bad, rotting fruit? No. It's an impossibility. It's allowing God to do heart surgery in only the way that he can. And the Pharisees didn't do that. They were living in self-righteousness. They thought that they could climb their way towards righteousness through living really, really well in front of everybody else and out in the outer circles of life, right? In the behavioral circles of life. And that is self-righteousness without addressing the heart. Jesus says the righteousness you need is to surrender yourself, heart and everything, totally to me. And that is Christ's righteousness. That's living out of Christ's righteousness. By the way, that brings security and safety and a sense of humor and lightheartedness, and passion. It brings so much. The interesting thing about all this is that unlike the path of the Pharisee, which was very burdensome to live under, Jesus' path is really light, and it's full of joy. It's not burdensome, right? I like how Dallas Willard puts it. He says, the primary learning here isn't about how to act. Just as the primary wrongness or problem in human life isn't what we do. Often what human beings do is so horrible that we can be excused, perhaps, for thinking that, 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 that all that matters is stopping it. Think about a KK rally. All you want to do is stop that. But this is an evasion of the real horror the heart from which the terrible actions come. 
In both cases, it's, it's who we are in thought, feeling, disposition, and choice, the inner life that counts. Profound transformation is the only thing that can definitively conquer outward evil. The problem is we've been focusing on the behavioral circle of life all the time. And that's where we, might, we, we need to be cautious about getting on the issue bandwagon. We really need to be cautious. It usually only deals at the behavioral level, lacking true compassion, lacking true forgiveness, and derails the deeper spiritual progress that we need to make. It makes us angry people. God's always moving, but He's never changing. Always moving, never changing. Spiritual formation is a process of allowing the Holy Spirit access to our hearts, participating with Him by ingesting truth, communing in prayer, in order to be formed in our inner being with the likeness of Christ. The outer life begins to reflect Jesus in ways truly transformed by the inner life. Have you felt for five sermons I've been redundant? I hope so. Because I am. Because you, if I said it once, you would have not heard it. We needed five sermons in this direction. And we'll need many more to get this through our heads. We need to hear this stuff over and over and over and over again. We are participatory in this. We place ourselves on the surgeon's table, but Christ as surgeon works on our heart. Right? I, I get up. I pray. I get up. I study the word. I get up. I memorize scripture. I get up. I share that with my brother in Christ, my sister in Christ. Without Christ transforming us, we end up merely trying harder or just waiting on God or just getting more information. If you remember that from the, the fall, we had a sermon specifically on those three things. Spiritual forma, formation isn't the New Year's resolution where we just say, I'm just going to try harder. I'm just going to do better this time. That's not, that's not it. That doesn't work, right? It's allowing ourselves to be worked on, right? It's obedience. It's not wrestling away from the surgeon's knife, but it realizes that his cut actually brings healing. When he wounds me, he does it to make me stronger and better and more healthy. I don't just endeavor to act more loving. When Jesus changes me, I am loving. If I play act, it'll be shallow and short-lived at best. And it will only add to my frustration and my anger later on. If I try to act loving and then you do something to piss me off, I'm just going to be more angry, right? I can't forgive you because it's all a bit about me. When Jesus does heart surgery, though, we don't just act loving. We actually become loving people. There's a big difference. So we're not just going to try harder, but we're not just waiting around letting life happen either, Right? Spiritual formation is a process where we actively put ourselves next to Jesus, an orderly, consistent process of ripening, not looking for sensational moments, but a methodical sitting at the feet of Jesus, going to the cross every single day to meet with Him. As Dallas Willard says, grace doesn't rule out method, nor method grace. Grace thrives on method and method on grace. 
In other words, I don't change my heart, but I'm part of the process. What I do is important. Living in grace isn't pass. Pass. It's not passivity. It's active in relationship with Jesus under the umbrella of His grace. And lastly, spiritual formation isn't about just getting more information. It is ingesting, ingesting, it's chewing slowly, it's masticating. I wanted to use the word. Masticating, right? Masticating. That's a great word, isn't it? It's chewing slowly on the word of God as if we were sitting at a leisurely meal with Jesus for the rest of our lives. We don't have to do this stuff quickly. If you memorize one verse a week, which you can do, gosh, you, you are light years ahead of most people. I mean, just... Get up every morning and focus on one verse. You will be a changed person, right? Where, where am I? <laughs> um, it's, 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 it's chewing on this word, this, this word slowly as if we're at this meal, right? No rush. We don't have to get through this quickly. More chatter won't make us better people you know, or more like him. We, we, we have all we need right there in the pages of the Bible. We have everything we need. If we'll utilize the scriptures in context relationship with him, he will change us. He will. Spiritual formation is our responsibility and the way of great joy in our lives if we'll engage with it. His, his burden is light. It is fulfilling in ways that nothing else can be. And I, I say that out of my own experience. I know it. So for all you millennial types, you postmodern minds, it is relevant. It makes a difference. It really does. So although the world, as Dallas Willard put it when we first started speaking today, although the world may be spiritually impoverished out there, Jesus is creating citizens of his kingdom who cannot only live in non-destructive manners, right, or ways, but actually become loving, truth-filled people. And he longs that we go from spiritual third world to spiritual first world. He's building into us, and he's using us in the process at the same time in the lives of others. So let's, let's just end today by meditating on this simple verse, Psalm 86, 11 through 13. I want you guys to go into a prayerful uh, stance. Let's close our eyes. And I'm going to just read this slowly a few times for us and then go quiet for a moment and let the Scripture speak to you. And then I'll, I'll wrap it up. Let's go to prayer. Psalm 86, 11 through 13. Teach me more about you. How you work how you move so that I can walk onward in your truth until everything within me brings honor to your name. With all my heart and passion, I will thank you, my God. I will give glory to your name always and forever. You love me so much and you placed your greatness upon me. You rescued me from the deepest place of darkness and you have delivered me from a certain death. Let me read that one more time. Teach me more about you, how you work and how you move 
so that I can walk onward in your truth until everything within me brings honor to your name. With all my heart and passion, I will thank you, my God. I will give glory to your name always and forever. You love me so much and you place your greatness upon me. You rescued me from the deepest place of darkness and you have delivered me from a certain death. Why don't you just let the Lord identify thoughts for you as you hear that read over you. Father, that's our request, that, we would, that you would teach us more about you, how you work, how you move, in order that we can walk in your truth until everything within us, about us, surrounding us, brings honor to your name, even our private thoughts. Come and move us into that place where we really are deeply understanding and experiencing you in powerful and passionate ways.